Hello and welcome to the Life Enchanted podcast. We're on a mission to optimize our lives through faith, health, wisdom, and much more. Thank you for joining us on our journey. Here now is our host, Nick Carlisle. What is good, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to Life Enchanted. My name is Nick Carlisle, and I have the pleasure of being your host as we nerd out on all things faith, health, interesting, and optimizing. The goal here is to help you live a better life, my friends. Simple as that. And selfishly, it helps me as well as I am forced to rearticulate things and teach things to you guys and dive deep into content with guests who have valuable wisdom to share with the world. So it is a win-win for both of us. Praise God for the internet. A couple of things before we dive into today's episode. First, hit me up on Instagram, at nick.carlisle, that is. I am very active on there and would love to connect with you guys personally. Also, I encourage you to check out my website. That's www.mylifeenchanted.com. On there, you can inquire about my holistic life coaching services. You can check out the Truth Pack, which is a little something that's been tremendously helpful and valuable for me in my morning routine and in my pursuit to optimize my day. You can also check out some shirts and hoodies I designed. There's a free 25-page eating guide on there, a little PDF I developed. I'll put the link to all of that in the show notes below this episode. Lastly, and most importantly, please leave a rating and possibly write a review of Life Enchanted on whatever podcast platform you're using. I'm trying to grow this thing, and I need you guys to help me do that. You play an integral part there, so sharing any of my content on Instagram or any of these podcast episodes would be so much appreciated, and I will love you forever. But that's enough of the housekeeping items from me. Now let's dive into today's episode. My guest for this episode is my guy, Nathan Oates. Nathan is an author, he is a speaker, and he is also the lead pastor at Emmaus Church Community in Lincoln, California. He holds a master's degree in spiritual formation from Wheaton College, and he is just an all-around solid and insightful and inspiring dude. His new book, Stability, How an Ancient Monastic Practice Can Restore Our Relationships, Churches, and Communities, is available now wherever you get your books, as well as NathanOates.com. That's N-A-T-H-A-N-O-A-T-E-S.com. I will also link to that in the show notes. I'm stoked for you guys to hear this. So without further ado, my interview with Nathan Oates. So I want to get right into it, and I want to start with that time you went to Italy to live with Benedictine monks for multiple weeks in 2018. (laughs) So first, who was St. Benedict? And then tell us why you went out there to do that, man. So Benedict is an Italian kid living in the 6th century. He grows up in a town called Norcia, which is about 30 miles from Rome. Uh, when he turns 18 or 19, he moves to Rome in order to go to college. But what he discovers is like rampant moral decay and, and severe corruption in the Christian church, which at that time is is just the church in Rome. And he gets completely disillusioned by the whole thing. I mean, he, he hoped that he would go and be able to study philosophy and theology 
but he gets completely disgusted with what he finds. And so he literally drops out of college and he goes and lives in a cave down by the river. Um, and just like, he literally, <laughs> it's, like the, it's like the van. Yeah. It's like the sixth century van uh, <laughs> life kind of thing. So, um, and he's and like 18 when he did that. Yes. He's super young. Dang. But he's, he somehow develops this just through word of mouth association. He develops this reputation as a holy man. There's some speculation that he had worked some miracle. And um, certainly there's, he's not the only one doing this. There's kind of a general Rome is falling. So that's the background. Rome is falling. Um, it's crumbling. Uh, democracy is just the, it's the, the, um, experiment of, of Roman democracy mm-hmm. is in shambles. So slowly people start finding him in the wilderness, in this cave by the Amiene river. And they, uh, they want to, they want to be with him. They want to be associated with him. They want him to be their, their like guru. And so slowly these groups start kind of coming around him. A couple of times, the groups, and I'm talking about small groups, like 8, 10, 12 guys, mm-hmm. they become, like their early fascination with him gets uprooted quick because he's so austere. He's so devoted to Jesus. He's he's so disciplined that they're like, we can't hang with this guy. <laughs> but and, and so they actually try to kill him at, at one point. In fact, if you see a, if you see an icon of Benedict, there's a couple things that'll set like that will indicate that's benedict that's supposed to be a picture of benedict who knows what he looked like but there's always uh, a raven in his icon and the reason is because the story is that at one point these monks that are living with him they try to poison him by putting poison in the eucharist in in the communion wine and yeah and in the bread and so he's celebrating communion and this raven swoops down and grabs the bread out of his hand what takes it away and that when he yeah this and then when he makes the sign of the cross over the cup um the chalice it explodes so this is this is depicted in a cave uh outside of norcia that i got to see in 2018 that's so um it is. It's a you know. It's a really crazy. So anyway, he he um, eventually Nick these kind of wannabe monks abandon him, and some serious guy has come around him, and he begins a Christian community with the purpose of restoring the church. Hmm. Um, and slowly, these communities grow. He keeps them small, but then they, they reproduce. There's dozens of small communities of 12 guys each. And it's as he leaves these communities that he develops a way of life that he then codifies, writes down. It's called the rule of St. Benedict. And that become, that's never gone out of print. It still exists today. So um, that's who he, he was and what intrigued me about him initially. I didn't know anything about this guy like 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. picked up the rule of St. Benedict and it's the, the first line of the first chapter is clearly 
there are four kinds of monks. And I just thought that was the most intriguing opening line for a book. And I didn't know there were four kinds of monks. I thought they were like one kind of monk, yeah, right? Yeah. Like kind of a friar tuck kind of a guy. So what I read in this first chapter of his of his book called The Rule is such a profoundly accurate diagnosis of the brand of Christianity that was pervasive in Rome in the sixth century that also felt really similar to the brand of Christianity that is pervasive in Northern California in the 21st century. I was Mm. like, I have got to figure this guy out. If he diagnoses the problem in a way that I think is so accurate, maybe he's got a solution for this problem. And so that's why I kept reading. That's super interesting. So talk to us about some, before we get into some of those problems that he was identifying within Rome, um, talk to us about some of the characteristics of just like the order. Like what was his theology like, or what was his daily habits or practices? Like what was that dude about? Yeah, that's a great question. There's very little about him. There's uh, the only book that he wrote is the rule. Uh, um, which in Latin is regular. It's like the way, not like the rules, like pool rules or something, but mm-hmm. this is a way to live. Mm. Um, so that's what he wrote that we have. And then there is one biographical source written by a monk that started to follow the rule. His name was Gregory. And later Gregory becomes, he never knew Benedict, but he was following the rule. Um, he comes about a hundred years after Benedict or two. And then he, Gregory becomes Pope. <laughs> he becomes Pope Gregory the Great. And he endorses wow. the rule as the standard for, for Christian monasticism in the West, which is kind of like Costco picking up your book. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> has access to it. And so that's, um, so he, that is Gregory, he writes um, a, a book about Benedict's life um, and that's where we know what we know about about Benedict that's super interesting so, so you asked what what yeah so what what characterizes his order there's three there's three vows that Benedictine monks take that are distinct um, the first is the vow of stability which is the focus of my book the second vow is the vow of obedience and the third vow is it's hard to translate in Latin. It's conversario morum. And mostly that's translated like ongoing conversion, or sometimes it's translated faithfulness to monastic life, or sometimes it's translated ongoing death. But Mm -hmm. the idea is you continue, you don't arrive, you continue to grow in devotion and in holiness. So stability, obedience, and ongoing conversion. Those of the three vows the motto of his communities was and continues to be ora et labora which is prayer and work Mm. and so the day is organized around um seven times of prayer and in between those prayer the prayer is seen as the main work and then in between those times of prayer there is what we consider like manual labor where they're they're brewing beer or or they're making candles or they're gardening or they're doing whatever they do to sustain the community, um, like practically. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's all, but the whole thing is, the whole thing is spiritual. The whole thing is seen as this unified way of life. You work and you pray, you pray and you work, you work and you pray. 
your working with your hands be, becomes a prayer and the praying in more of a traditional sense is your work. Mm. Um, and then what characterizes the rule of St. Benedict, as opposed to other rules that are out there and that were written even before his, is this really interesting thing. And it's part of why I think people today are so drawn to it still. There's like a, there's a flexibility that's inherent in the rule. He says, I'm trying to lay down nothing harsh and nothing burdensome. Um, he says it's a rule for beginners. And hmm. so there's this interesting sort of accommodation for typical human weakness. For instance, it's not like so harsh that it just kills you, even though in from a modern perspective, it's still really, really, intense but he has like for example he says if it's cold you can the monk can have an extra shirt mm, yeah. <laughs> or if the monk is sick he can eat meat typically they don't eat meat um but he's like dude if he's sick give him some meat like go to the store get some meat and feed him some meat um or in the winter or when it's dark sleep longer and so there's this really beautiful gracious sort of hey, we're pursuing God with everything we are, but we aren't going to be like mechanical about it. We're going to be, um, we're going to be graceful and compassionate and accommodating. And we're just going to basically acknowledge the fact that life is a journey and that it's not going to be like exactly the same routine every day for the rest of your life without any kind of adjustment made for grief or pain or suffering of uh, physical nature or old age or things like that. That's super interesting. I'm, I'm curious if that like mindset, that flexibility mindset of like allowing the, mm -hmm. the grace and the flexibility there was, was that contrary to Rome? I'm just assuming here that maybe Rome, the, the practices of Rome are perhaps a little bit more dogmatic or black or white. And maybe he came underneath that and was like, Hey, here's a more flexible approach. Was, was that true or? I don't think that was true because at least in the common church, in the typical church, um, the church had become super lax and mm. the priesthood was kind of a joke. So it's the and opposite opens, problem. It's the opposite. Yeah. But, but he's looking at, so he tries to, he tries to correct what he calls two kinds of monk. I mean, he, he nearly abandons the church in its current, form. Um, he, he wants to renew and restore the church, but he's going to go all the way to the root, which he believes is being a monk. Hmm. And then the monk will model a holy life to the church. So that's interesting. He kind of abandons or at least says, I'm not, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to try to restore the church from within the church. I'm going to go deeper into the soil, deeper into the root to restore it from a, from a, like a seminal level, like a, a seed level. Um, but even that level, the level of, of monks, and there's already, by the time he's on the scene, there's already at least 200 years of Christian monasticism, mostly in the East. Mm -hmm. Um, and those dudes were severe. Those guys were like, you know, living in the desert, yeah. not eating at all. Um, and just sustaining off like the, like spiritual power. Um, and it's that it's to that group that I think he's trying to go. Like, hey, we don't, we don't all need to be living on top of a pole and mm. not eating. You know, we we don't all need to be so austere that um, 
that we don't ever talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. interesting. Um, so if yeah, is that is did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. No, I I love it, and I'm super intrigued by that, especially like the relation to the desert fathers and mothers. Mm-hmm. That that stuff fascinates me because I'm all into the mindfulness and meditation and the presence of God being everywhere and all that, which kind of seems like all of that was birthed out of those different movements. Um, And that stuff fascinates me. So like a typical day when you were at that monastery there, you said it comprised Mm -hmm. of, of work and rest. Those were, sorry, work and prayer. Those were the priorities there. So is that what you did when you were there for those multiple weeks? Were you just working and praying? Yeah. Yeah. Those guys were super gracious to me. I, I reached out to them uh, um, through a common friend who is a Dominican sister, uh, like a nun. And she, and I, and I was looking for just a, a place to stay for the weekend. Uh, I didn't actually articulate that though. So I said, Hey, would you guys welcome guests? And, and um, would it be okay if I stayed and lived with you for a little bit? Um, I'm going to be in Italy and and I was thinking like three days and this, uh, the guest master writes me back and he's like, you know, it's uh, we, our monastery was destroyed in an earthquake. We're kind of living in temporary situation. Um, so it's a challenging time to have guests. You're, you, it'd be okay for you to come, but only for about three weeks. I was like, <laughs> oh, this is going to go down. This is a whole nother level. Yes, right? so dude. I'm thinking like a weekend retreat. And yes. these guys are like, yeah, come live with us. So, yeah. And I mean, I got to do, I got to do virtually everything. I got to pray with them. The first prayer times at three 30 in the morning, I got to eat with them. I got to work with them. The only thing I, I didn't do is sleep in the common dorm where they sleep. Um, I, I slept in a, in the guest house, which was a, a metal storage container on the side of the. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So it was just a beautiful, I mean, it was, it was just, it was a life-changing experience. It was because what I had done, Nick, is I had been reading everything I could read about St. Benedict and about Dictine spirituality, which to use other words, like contemplative spirituality or um, ancient Christian practices, mindfulness, you mentioned that kind of the root that. I've been reading everything about that because my soul needs that because so much of the work that I do is public and speaking and with people. Yeah. And I need to like go deep. I need to have a source of the words that I'm saying. And so I'm reading this stuff like crazy, but I'm not ever actually seeing it lived out. And I frankly didn't think anyone did it anymore. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I- I wonder how much of this book written in the sixth century, they actually still um, follow because Mm -hmm. that's what it is. It's like an instruction book. It's like, pray this at this time, handle the food like this and the tools like this. Here's the sleeping arrangement. Here's how many weeks you do this kind of work before you change to that other kind of work. And I'm like, probably the principles are are still obeyed. But I went to this place in Norton, which was like the green berets of of benedictine follow it to the letter Mm -hmm. to the letter dude and so i was just seeing this thing lived out i mean imagine like watching your movie the movie you've watched more than any other movie because you just love it you're like man i wish i could go like i wish i could be in that movie and then you get to you (laughs) you get to go and actually see them do it yeah and the whole thing nick is in latin and i don't (laughs) 
speak Latin. And so, but I'm not kidding you. I'm, I'm so familiar with the rule of St. Benedict that within the first couple of days, I'm watching stuff happen, like in the chapel. Like for instance, there's this, at the end of the day, at the end of the week, and I happen to arrive at the end of a week, these two guys come out in the middle of the floor. Their chapel is sort of arranged with like two rows on the left, two rows on the right, and they face each other. There's only 14 guys in the community. Uh So they face each other. Now two guys come out in the middle. They kneel down. A priest says a prayer. One of the monks who's a priest says a prayer for the two guys. And then two more guys come out and they kneel. And then they say a prayer for that guy. And I'm like, oh, I think that's... I think those are the guys who have been serving food all week. And here come the next two guys that are going to serve food. Because in the rule, there's this prayer that the guys who have been serving food for the previous week, they say a prayer for them, thanking God for their strength and their service. And then they pray for the next two dudes who are going to serve food that they don't get bitter and that they serve with joy. Mm. And my family had been doing that, praying for each other. Um, at dinner for whoever was going to do the dishes that night. It was just one of the ways I was like, hey, let me try to learn from this, right? Yeah. So anyway, I'm seeing this work out. And then the next day I asked this monk, I'm like, hey, was that the prayer for the servers? And he's like, yeah. That's so rad. Quick pause, friends. This episode is brought to you by the good people at Viore Clothing. I'm obsessed with this brand. I work out in it. I wear it to work. I wear it to church. I wear it on dinner dates with my wife. I paddleboard in it. They just make really durable and versatile and comfortable clothing, and I need that in my life. Their goal was to build men's and women's active wear that didn't look like active wear, and they did that quite well, if I do say so myself. My two personal favorite pieces of theirs are their core shorts and then their Tuvalu tee, which are both so sick and fit super well. And my wife loves their performance joggers and all of their women's workout tanks. Overall, Viore is an investment in your happiness, and for listeners of Life Enchanted, they are offering 20% off your first purchase. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash enchanted. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash enchanted. Not only will you receive 20% off your first purchase, but enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Just go to viore.com slash enchanted and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. I want to get into your book, but before we do that, I want to stay with this a little bit because you brought up this idea of like contemplative prayer and like abiding yeah. in the vine and like mindfulness and all that stuff. And, and, and to me, on my own spiritual journey, that has kind of been the answer to it all that I've been searching for. And it took me quite a bit of stumbling to get there. It's like union with Christ, man. Like that, that's the whole reason that, that we exist. And that is, that is where we feel most fulfilled is, is when we are in union with him in connection with him. So unfortunately, most of us have like developed this, this mind and this flesh that is disconnected from him and is not aware. Another word for this is awareness. Um, and so trying to cultivate that mindset where, where you feel the presence of the spirit within you and you, you, you abide in the vine. I mean, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing like super strong language. Like when you're not abiding in him, you can do nothing. So talk to us like about experiencing that and how it altered. I mean, was there from being there, was a, was there a permanent shift in your spirituality or talk to us about like how you've grown in, in that area of your life, abiding in the vine and and the importance of it and all that. Okay. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say definitely 
my time at the monastery is is one of the most life-shaping experiences I've ever had. Um, it absolutely pushed the dial on my own experience. And for context, um, for your listeners, I've, I've been a follower of Jesus since I was 13. I've been a pastor, full-time pastor since uh, 98, 1998. So that's a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I say that to say that I've been exposed to a lot of Christian theology and sources for a long time. And I've, I've been practicing my faith for a long time. And this changed me. This moved stuff for me. Mm. Mostly it changed me in, I, I use this, this analogy. Turn 29 for some reason, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm 29. I got to fix life. I got to figure this out. And I started running. And for a decade, I ran. Uh, and towards the end of that decade, I'd, I'd probably run like a half marathon, probably the longest thing. I'd ever, I was kind of just a typical like morning jogger. Um, and, but I always thought, man, I, I need to run a marathon at some point. That was sort of felt like the achievement of, of a runner. Um, and I just couldn't, I just, I just felt like I was stalled out at a, at a half marathon max. And I started running, got invited by these guys who were training for the Western States 100, which is a trail run. That's a hundred miles from Truckee to Auburn. And um, they said, Hey, you want to train with us? And they said, we meet at 410. And I said, Oh, I, you know, I work, I got a full-time job. I can't meet you at 410. And they're like, AM dude, AM. So I was like, Oh, it's going to change. So we start running together at 410 in the morning. And within a couple of weeks, I've totally surpassed it. Mm. My, my previous like um, sort of plateau. And what I'm trying to get at is by getting exposed, by being exposed to guys who weren't just at my level or a little bit ahead of me, but were like many steps ahead of me Mm. um, from a fitness perspective, that's where the growth came. They, Mm. they were running with me on their easy day and it was like the hardest run I'd ever done. Um, and that's where the growth came and, and hanging with these just weeks, same, it had the same effect, Nick. I was so challenged by these guys. Um, they were another level and it was very humbling, mm. very humbling. I'm the oldest guy there by far, except for the app, uh, the guy who started the community. Um, every, all these monks are in their twenties. Oh, wow. And they're, most of them are American. So I feel like I get these guys on one level, but uh, um, they really, and I would point out two things. You and I have talked about this a little bit before, but these guys prayed all day long. They pray for eight hours a day. Mm. And I pray every day, but I don't pray very much um, mm. like that. And when I was praying with them, I was just totally running out of things to pray. I was just like, how can I possibly? even think of something to pray for an hour, let alone eight hours. Yeah. And I have a lot to say about this, but the bottom line is um, one of them helped me see that my prayer had become completely out of balance. Basically what I pray about is help me fix things, God, mm-hmm. help me fix things, um, help me know what to do and help me to fix things. And there was all, almost no adoration mm. in my prayer. No, no worship, no just um, adoring God. 
Hmm. And you run out of things to intercede for eventually. And I'm praying for like my kids, future spouses. I'm praying for everybody I know in my church. I, and then I run out of stuff, but don't run out of like the tank never runs empty for just praising the Lord. And I needed to do, I needed to engage in more adoration of God um, in prayer. And that starts to then leak out and then just bleed into the rest of your life all day long. There's this, there's this, it's not just mindfulness of the presence of God. Mm-hmm. It is an awareness or a mindfulness of the presence of God that is flavored with adoration, mm. adoration. It's like, it's not just he's here and it's neutral. It's, I understand and recognize there is a presence that is deserving of my praise and my worship. So mm-hmm. that moved the dial for me. That's huge. And then another thing that moved the Yeah, it is huge. It is. I want to hear your thoughts on that. Let me throw this in the bucket real quick. Yeah. The other thing that, sh- that shifted big for me was that they don't eat a lot. And, um, and I became very uncomfortable. I was very uncomfortable. I was very hungry. I was very tired because I was getting up in the middle of the night and they had a view of comfort that really challenged my view of comfort. I prioritize comfort and they do not. Hmm. And they felt like comfort is probably mostly a hindrance to devotion to God and to other people. In other words, we choose our personal comfort over serving others and serving God. Therefore, it's a good thing to learn how to be uncomfortable. And that that really challenged me. It yeah. really challenged me. And I again, I was like, man, how have I how have I reached my late 40s with such a addiction to comfort, with such a priority placed on my, my own comfort? And I began to see how it really was a hindrance in Christian spirituality. So clearly that can be taken to an extreme that's unhealthy, yeah. but I needed and definitely benefited from a correction on that. That's so interesting, man. And so much there I want to get into. Um, so were they intentionally fasting? Like what, would it, would they do longer yeah. fasts or was it just like, because yeah. I've, I've heard different sermons and different pastors whom I really respect talk about spiritual fasting and I'm big in on the physical benefits of fasting. But I think that there's like, if you can blend the two and get this synergistic experience of like the physical stuff, like autophagy and, you know, becoming more mm-hmm. insulin sensitive and stuff like that. But at the same time, recognizing that your fuel and that your provisions come from the being who created you ultimately and being able able to focus your mind more and more on him is is super powerful and i haven't completely wrapped my mind around kind of like my my thesis between the two and like my whole mm. you know idea but it's so fascinating to me and um as you're saying that i'm like dang yeah like the the suffering because ultimately when you're when you're you know uncomfortable when you're purposely experiencing discomfort you're you're suffering in a little bit of a way and yeah. and personally yeah. in my life the times that I've had to, the times that I have grown the most spiritually and that my connection and my dependence on my creator has flourished is, is unfortunately in the valley, man, the dark times. Mm -hmm. But like I put Mm -hmm. something on Instagram the other day that actually your, one of your mentors said at your retreat, um, father Tom Mm -hmm. Brinley, um, Mm -hmm. I asked him about heaven and he said, that the valley of the shadow of death is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And I'm like, that rocked me, dude. I'm like, dang, son, let's go, you know, and it's Mm -hmm. all connected. And 
I don't know. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that experience discomfort so that you can focus your real attention on what matters. There's a lot of wisdom there, dude. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, and it goes both ways. If you can kind of think of it as a negative and a positive, yeah, from a kind of a typically negative standpoint, you're hungry, you're uncomfortable. It just kind of wakes you up. You're more alert and aware and a little bit edgy and you are intentional about your decisions and your speech and your focus with your thought life and things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, from a positive standpoint, one of the benefits is then when you eat, you are celebrating, man, mm. and you are grateful. And you're not just grazing the refrigerator all day long, but like I do when I work from home. I don't even eat a meal. I just graze for yeah. like 15 hours, <laughs> right? I just, just eat, man, and I'll eat whatever I can find. Um, but one of the things that was so interesting was that the adoration of Christ was so deeply woven into everything that they did is that it was even a fundamental aspect of their dining. So in other words, if it was a fasting day, if you fasted all day and then here's the meal, the one meal of the day, it's very sparse. It's like lentils, vegetables, one piece of bread and a glass of water. Mm. If it's a holy day and they recognize and, and honor all kinds of holy days, feast days. So every week there were two regular fast days, um, fasting days, two a week. And you would also fast the day before a feast day or a holy day. But every week there was at least one or two feast days. So on the feast days, like I show up, Nick, I think I may have told you this. I show up after walking to this monastery for several days, I walked there. And I show up and the, the, the monks, the brothers like, are you hungry? And I'm like, dude, I am so hungry. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry. It's a fasting day today. <laughs> and then oh, no. he goes, ooh, I know. And then the next thing he says is, tomorrow's a fasting day too. <laughs> oh, no, dude. And I, I think he must have seen something in my eyes because he's like, come on, let's find something in the kitchen. So he finds me something in the kitchen. But um, if, if you like come like – one of the days I was at the monastery with the feast of the sacred blood of Christ. It's not even recognized in newer Catholic churches anymore. And I'm telling you, we walked into this, the refectory, which is where they eat. And there's a glass of wine. There's a single shrimp on a plate with this garnish. And it goes from there. It was a feast. It was like, we are celebrating the source of life today. And we're going to eat and we're going to celebrate this. And, and it was so accentuated by, it would be like having Thanksgiving and but fasting a whole week before Thanksgiving. You're, oh, wow. you're just going to taste every flavor. You know, yeah, you're yeah. going to be grateful, not just for the mashed potatoes, but for the farmer who planted the potatoes in Iowa or wherever. <laughs> yes, you know what I mean, yes. I just felt like my senses were on, it, everything was so multi-sensory there. I was just mm. like, oh, mm. felt a Alive, bro felt alive and um so yeah super cool man some of the takeaways those are a couple of the takeaways yeah i'm adoring huge. christ more and uh and i'm embracing discomfort with greater anticipation because i know that it's healthy
Yeah, those those are two great takeaways, and I'm for sure going to be more mindful of those two. And I feel like that, I mean, one of the things that I say often is creation admiration. I've made t-shirts about it, and I feel like one of the yeah. things that, like, that adoration breeds two things for me. It breeds humility, and it breeds, as you said, gratitude. And those two things, man, if I could have a life full of humility and gratitude, I'm chilling. You know, and like mm-hmm. Paul, Paul told us to pray without ceasing. Um, and you know, that that's never stop praying for those of you that don't know. So it's like, yeah, we run out of things to pray for, but the purpose of prayer isn't to ask God for things. It's, it's again, to abide, right. abide in the vine and, and yep. to, to notice his presence in the trees and in the bird and in the conversations and in the provisions and in the guidance and in the feelings um, and in the truth of, of what Scripture tells us. And it's like, man, if, if we can cultivate our mindset to get there, um, we're doing well, man. We're doing well. So, all right, let's get back to yeah. the to the Benedictine vows. There's the promise of stability. There's the conversion of morals, roughly translated, and then mm-hmm. the obedience. And then, so mm-hmm. you recently wrote a book called Stability, subtitle, How an Ancient Monastic Practice Can Restore Our Relationships, Churches, and community. So why did you choose to write about stability, man? Because I think it's the solution. Mm. That's the bottom line. I think it is the essential ingredient for any work that lasts. And it feels really basic and it is really basic, but it's rare. And it's especially rare in a culture that is constantly moving constantly looking for the innovation, the, the hack, the trick, mm-hmm. the next thing, the upgrade. Um, and as a result of being formed so deeply by relatively affluent North American culture, um, we are moving and moving and moving and we're not accomplishing anything. We're not, we're not changing and restoring broken things. The, those who do, those who do work that actually matters, that actually heals, those who are engaging in relationships in a way that actually heals relationships, they, they are coming out of a place of stability. They have, they have remained and persisted and persevered and endured instead of just following kind of the well-worn cultural track of let's just keep moving on to the next thing all the time. So they've not just embraced a value or recognized a value of stability, but like all values, they're pointless unless you actually turn them into practices. Um, I think those who are practicing stability that we can point at as that person's actually changing the world. She's actually healing that family. He's actually having a pop positive impact on a community or whatever. Um, and so I wanted to shine a light on that and yeah. try to help myself flesh it out and also help others. I'm involved in community development development. And my essential thesis in the book is that, um, that stability is a core ingredient of work that matters mm. of, of restoring all things. Yeah. This this makes a lot of sense to me and I've never really heard it articulated until I started looking at the work that you were doing or even thinking about stability and how powerful and and effective and profound it could be. Um, Talk to us about the connection between 
the Roman Church of Benedict's Day, the Northern California Church, or just the the church in general in the Western Church today, the modern church, and then how stability relates to those two things. Okay, one one critical overlap is, and this this really spawned the whole project for me, the whole like fifteen year fascination with Saint Benedict. He says there's two kind of monks that he admires. There's the hermit. And um, I'll talk about that in a second. There's the, the Cenobite. He calls a Cenobite. And that means like the common life, the organic. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's the monk that is living in community with others in submission to a leader and is committed to the place. So stability from a Benedictine standpoint is basically a commitment to people, place, and a purpose. Mm-hmm. So that's the ideal from his perspective. You're committed to this group in this place for this purpose. Now, he also admires the hermit, which is like the, the guy out on his own in the desert. But he argues that the hermit has has arrived at a place of unreal strength by rooting his development in the community first. So now he says, having been sharp in community, the hermit is ready to do hand-to-hand combat with the devil in the desert, which is so awesome to say it like that. Basically, I'm going to deal with my demons, right? I'm going to go into the desert. I'm going to deal with my demons. I'm going to deal with that core source of anxiety inside me or whatever. He's like, don't even try to do that unless you practice this with others first, then get out there and get after it. Mm. Then Nick, he identifies two kinds of monks. So so you asked about 6th century Rome Mm. and parallels with 21st century America. Here they are. There were two kinds of monks that he said he despised. One, he called them Cerebites. And he said, they basically um, gather up with a few of their close friends. They decide to call it church and they decide for themselves what is holy. Mm. And they don't challenge one another they agree they all already agree that's why they're friends in the first place and he says they're lying to themselves by their tonsure which is like the the robe that they wear they are acting like they're in some sort of transformational community they're just hanging out with their friends nothing wrong with hanging out with your with your friends but don't call that church because you're not submitting to anybody you're not being sharpened or challenged by anyone you're not having to serve anyone you you already want to be with these people so he says that's a joke and that i mean i'm like whoa i'm like i wanted to start home churches earlier yeah. in my life i like I, I i like hanging out with my friends it would be easier if my church were my six best friends mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> right and then the other said the other monk that he identifies and he says it's the those the other monks the fourth kind of monk he calls them gyro vags and he says they are worse in every way than the Cerebites. He said they're the most detestable. And gyrovags means they're just walking around in circles. And then he describes them. He says they show up at monasteries when you show up, you're treated like Jesus. And so they are welcomed in. They're given great food. They're welcomed. They're given a bed. They're treated as guests. But then these gyrovags, as soon as the community says, hey, you want to take a turn washing the dishes, they bounce. Mm-hmm. And they go to the next place. And they are welcomed with a lot of enthusiasm. And we're so glad you came to visit our church and now meet our pastor. And, and would you go to lunch with us? And then a couple of weeks later, hey, we're looking for some help with the kids ministry. Oh, sorry. We don't really like to worship here. I mean, can you see the parallel? Mm. It is glaring. It's glaring. And so 
it, ultimately the gyrovag was treating the church not as a community but as a commodity hmm. and was consuming the church just like they were consuming anything else and you're hearing the passion in my voice because i believe that consumerism is killing the church we aren't respectable anymore we have nothing to say anymore we're just like everybody else and it's not in the typical moral decline kind of areas that you hear decried by conservatives all the time. It's that we have no spiritual wisdom because we haven't had it developed under the heat of intense ad uh, adversity. Because as soon as things get hot, we leave. We mm. go to another place and, and where it fits us better or we like it better. Or, you know, that one thing was kind of annoying anyway. And consequently, we don't ever develop. We are it's like arrested development. Yeah. We love Jesus. We've received this gift of forgiveness as we understand it, which goes to salvation ultimately. But are we wiser? Can we handle anxiety any better? Do we have spiritual power? I don't think so because we haven't gone through the valley of the shadow of death, as you referred to earlier, where um, those kinds of abilities are honed and developed. instead it's too hard so we leave bro that's why that's why i think stability is the solution yeah is it fun no it's stinking hard but i think this is where where and the only place it's i believe it's essential in other words bro you can't go to the next level in your marriage with your wife unless you go through the next conflict mm. you have to go through it which means you have to stick with it, stick with her, or you could bounce. Yeah. And you could get married to somebody else, but you're not going to be any farther along in your development as a man or as a husband than you were the first time. Follow what I'm saying? Mm. She is in your life as a sanctifying agent. She is there in part to provide Real life adversity, which will be the context, the school for your development as a husband. You can't bail out of that. If yeah. you do, you're choosing to not to not grow. You're choosing to not develop. And so, um, but we're in a culture. That's the way we do it. That's Dang. the way we do it in marriage or in the church. Um, and I and forgive me if I'm a little no, keyed dude. up about it, but. Um, but I feel like it's just, you know, so then at the end of the day, who wants to listen to the church? I don't know if anybody does because yeah. I'm not sure we have anything to offer. Now, show me a minister that's been in the same town for 40 years, has cared for, baptized, mm -hmm. married, buried, has been a place of stability, a refuge, mm -hmm. a safe place, a consistent place. A, a dependable, reliant um, person in conflict, in tragedy. Okay, now that bro has something to offer. What is he bringing to the table? Stability. Mm. Dang. And the wisdom that comes from it. Yeah. Right? And can yeah. only come from it. I go to your dad for wisdom about marriage. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he read a good book? No, because he's been married for so long. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. he has acquired with that by being married for so long <laughs> there's mm -hmm. no shortcut to that so and there's a there's a vacancy 
in that in in the places um, where we keep looking for wisdom because there are so few people who have embraced stability on a practical enough level that they've actually developed wisdom. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So much good stuff there, and so much there. There's just so much wisdom in that that I feel like is is right there in front of us that we're just uh, conveniently overlooking, and I feel like we all kind of get that mm-hmm. that's occurring, but nobody's really addressing it. So thank you for addressing that. And it's super interesting because we're recording this right now in September of 2021. We are still Mm -hmm. in the midst, hopefully the tail end of the pandemic. And within the pandemic, there's been a lot of movement between churches, especially locally. Mm -hmm. We've heard of congregations separating and churches falling apart and people moving. And um, there's also been like the, the race wars and the social justice stuff. And um, there's been a lot of things that have occurred and a lot of churches have taken hard hits and I've struggled with that personally because I have a lot of friends and a lot of people who I'm in relationship with that have, that have moved to churches and are pretty outspoken about some things. And certain churches are more outspoken about certain things than others. And it's like, it's just kind of been a mess, dude. And like stability, stability in the last year and a half has been seemingly absent in one of the most troubling times, one of the darkest valleys that we can go to. It's like we all we all kind of ran for the hills and tried to find other paths instead of sticking with the course and fighting the good fight through the dark times to see us all come together through the other side. So that's been kind of rough for me. And I've always kind of thought like, man, like my my simple answer to a lot of the things, and I don't want to judge people, but it's like, I don't know if Jesus would have left his church for that. Like, you know, yeah. I hear people talking about different things and different churches splitting up and people, frankly, being pissed off at their church. And I'm like, man, I don't know if mm-hmm. Jesus would have done like, you know, that's what we're ultimately called. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I'm like Jesus, but like if that's a pretty basic framework to filter things through and it's like, so that's been tough. But so talk to me about mm-hmm. kind of the last year and what you've seen locally amongst churches and certain churches being basically diminished down to nothing, other churches booming. I mean, what mm-hmm. what are your whole thoughts around what's occurred in that regard? Oh, man. Yeah. So... We're going to start a new podcast to talk about that, right? <laughs> yeah, is... dude. I know. I feel like we <laughs> can talk forever, man. Oh, bro, this is huge. And I'm kind of in the thick of it, and I'm not entirely clear-eyed about it, probably. So I'll just throw out a couple of thoughts. I don't know if they're... I hope they're helpful to somebody. A, everything's changed in the last year and a half. So we've reevaluated everything, right? Um, everything the way we work has changed, schools changed, everything's changed. Everybody knows that. So consequently, uh, there's movement, there's, there's shifting, there's people have changed churches, like they've changed jobs, like they've changed schools. And there's a lot of that. I think that's just a ramification of such a, such a thorough kind of reworking of our culture. Um, so to be more specific, um, the, the concept of local has changed and um, because you can, you can go to church in Oregon from Northern California. You can go to church in South Carolina because it's all online. Mm-hmm. Right. So that the whole idea when, when a lot of churches closed down, when most churches closed down, even the first just few weeks and 
gosh, if you're going to be online, you could go online anywhere. So this idea of local changed. Um, but here's the problem with that, Nick, is incarnation did not change. Hmm. Uh, and that's the second kind of big concept that I'm wrestling with. I'm wrestling with the idea of local because we have more people coming to our church now than we did before the pandemic. And we have people from places outside of the state that are worshiping hmm. with us. Um, and, and I, and I think that is in many ways a good thing. Um, but the, what, what pushes back against that a bit is that Christianity is an incarnational religion. It, Jesus, God came in the flesh and that was essential. It was critical in order to communicate with humans to become a human. And there's an element of Christianity that, that if, if extracted, basically eradicates Christianity. And that is the incarnation. So it is, it's impossible to really and entirely and thoroughly practice Christianity virtually. It requires incarnation. It requires showing up. It requires being with people. Mm. And, and so I feel like that's the, that's the tension. Uh, the whole options, we don't have to literally go to a building to participate in communities worship, but to not be in community with others and to share life physically with others. Um, uh, it starts to break down a very core element to, to Christianity. Yeah. Uh, so core, in fact, that even God showed up physically to reach people. So, hmm. so I don't know in terms of the bigger question of like people moving around to churches, yeah. I think a lot of it is probably healthy. I think a lot of it is just, Hey, here's an opportune time to try something else. I have seen, I feel like I've seen a lot of, um, or I shouldn't say a lot. I've seen some, um, new awareness of specific needs that need to be addressed by the church and maybe aren't being addressed as well by your specific church. And so here's a chance to go join with a bunch of people who are addressing those needs mm -hmm. as more of a front line. And I admire the desire to go get some good work done. What makes me sad is when um, the whole church should be whole. Mm. Every church should be addressing injustice. And so what we need is for people in every church to be practicing their gifts in that church, not just all the evangelism focused people going to the same church or all the social justice minded people going to the same church or all the political engagement when it comes to kind of classic issues, politically going to the same church. I need people like that in, in my church to help us have a, a wide ranging and complete expression of Christianity. I wish they, I wish more people would stay instead of move simply because I think the family becomes better and more whole and, and well-rounded versus us just kind of cloistering up uh, with people who think just like us. Yeah, man. And I think that's where we live. That's one of the big issues that, uh, 
exists around here and that's unfortunate and it's one of the reasons like i have a buddy who used to live in la now he lives in new york and i visit him usually for like four days every year and i always come back like so inspired and so refreshed um because of the diversity that i experience i mean we we live in a bubble mm-hmm. man placer county is a bubble and we yeah. we get caught up i get caught up in in the rat race and keeping up with the joneses and everyone looks like me everyone has a lot of the same opinions everyone you know is i don't know everyone's just kind of on the same wavelength and so to experience the world in america outside of placer county is always like so refreshing and helpful for me um uh-huh. and Thank i should yeah mm-hmm. i should also clarify too and i don't want people to think that i was taking like a holier than thou uh approach to what i was saying about leaving the church because i personally our church wasn't able to accommodate us for eight months out of the pandemic and yeah. we were going faithfully to a church and it was like man we we can't go there because they can't accommodate us we can't bring our kids there we're not going to find babysitters on sunday mornings and it's just not going to work so um we've had to bounce around and try and find like all right lord where where are we being led right now and where do you want us and where can we serve and where can we be the most most fruitful and it's been super hard man it's we just in the last week and a half feel like we have clarity and that we've done um what we've needed to do and we've prayerfully been been led through it and we have peace mm-hmm. and rest at where we've landed so i i to, i'm one of the statistics that it happened and it hasn't been easy mm-hmm. but um yeah. yeah i think just like making sure i i feel personally like we did it for for pure logical reasons as opposed mm-hmm. to some of the other people who um i've heard about or know who it's it's more like political on something that's you know it's it's just things that are like hmm eh, i don't know like you know More like personal preference or yeah something. yeah so that's been that's what's been hard for me yeah yeah i appreciate you saying that and i certainly in my intensity i am often um and my passion i'm often um it's easy to to sound really judgmental to people and i'm not and i want to be judgmental to people and i honestly recognize that a lot lot of people have shifted around um, and a lot of that has resulted in greater health mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. however my concern is that it's whether it was a good move or not a good move um, it feels like it unintentionally ends up reiterating or re-emphasizing a pattern which is I yeah. just I just change when it gets hard it got real hard granted it got hard on like seven different layers or mm-hmm. issues i mean mm-hmm. it did the church has just gotten blown now it's been hard to be in leadership in any organization i'm sure uh, the church is one of those so i get it it got really really hard and it got really really personal but um but my my hope is that somehow we um that we are able to learn how to work through hard together versus mm-hmm. you know versus always moving but yeah, I, I absolutely, I just, I want to just say, I'm not, yeah. I'm not trying to judge people that have left our community or that have joined our community or, or I think it would be very hard to, yeah. to find a home in a community right now. Yeah. It'd be a serious challenge if it were something I had to do right now. Totally. Totally. We only have a couple minutes left, man. And I want to um, get to a couple more rapid fire questions towards the end. But before that, just kind of talk to us about like, 
what are the characteristics of a church, just general overview, high level, what are the characteristics of a church practicing a healthy stability, and then of a, uh, a church attendee, a person who is practicing a stable lifestyle? Talk to us about that. Okay. Uh, well, one of the things that churches that um, embrace stability do that I find really unique is they celebrate, I, I put it like this in the book. Um, there's four things in the end of the book that I invite people, whether they're in church or not, to embrace. Um, this one fits specifically within, in the context of a church. And that is to celebrate the root that leads to the fruit. We do a good job telling stories that are happy at the end, and we tell the story at the end. We wait till there's a happy ending, and then we say, see how amazing this ended up. What I'd like to see, and what you actually see some communities doing more, and they're the communities that have a long-term investment in a place, is they celebrate sacrifice. They celebrate mm. investment before, it has, before it's paid off. Um, there's a we're doing this because we're committed to this place, not we're raising money to, we often tell the story at the end when we have something admirable to point to. And what I'm trying to do is, is elevate the value of stability by celebrating the choice for stability itself. That's super good. Trusting, yeah, trusting that later, maybe after I'm dead, there will be the fruit, mm-hmm. but let's go ahead and celebrate it. Now let's celebrate. Another thing that you can do, whether you're in a church or just an individual is you, you can value the permanency of people in your life. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean you only have two friends, but it does mean that in a culture where, um, you know, relationships are, uh, on one level, super accessible through social media and it feels like you're well-connected to a lot of people. Um, instead, maybe it's it's prioritizing, like your example, going to New York four days a year to develop and nurture a, a relationship with a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, there's, it's wonderful to have 50 friends, right? Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. It's essential, I think. It's a whole nother level of amazing to be able to say, this is one of my best friends and we've been friends for 50 years. Mm-hmm. Like that's awesome. So that, that doesn't just happen. That needs to be nurtured. And what you're doing there is you're valuing the permanency of, of people. You're seeing them not as dispensable. You're certainly not using them or climbing up the ladder with or on them. You, you are, you're seeing them as a, a long-term part of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Super good, man. I love that. Celebrating the root and not the fruit. That's freaking awesome. I'm going to put that on Instagram probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm going to lock that one away. I'll give you credit. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, so real quick before we wrap up, man, a couple, couple quick fire questions for you. Uh, you already talked about the rule of St. Benedict, your book, Stability, releases. Um, actually, this episode will probably come out right around when it does release, so it's probably available to, now to the listen, to the listeners, um, but if not, if it comes out before, it's out uh, September 21st, uh, 2021. Stoked for that. Um, but be, besides those two books, if there are some other books that you could recommend um, from any genre for the listeners to check out and me to check out, what would those books be and why, if any come to mind? 
Yeah, if you're wanting an introduction to Benedict, I would recommend Seeking God by Esther DeWall. That's mm-hmm. D-E capital W-A-A-L. Seeking God by Esther DeWall. Um, my favorite book from the summer and the most helpful for me as a spiritual leader is um, Reading While Black by Esau McCulley. Mm. Uh, fascinating read um, about stories in scripture or passages in scripture that many of us uh, who are Christian are familiar with, but probably have only heard one perspective on. And uh, Esau shares how certain, um, specifically how the African-American community, because of the limited publishing of spiritual leaders from that background, um, uh, the voices on certain key stories, then the perspectives are just not as well known specifically in kind of typical evangelical Christianity. So I love hearing other people's perspectives on the Bible. Yeah. And that's why I love Catholic monks. And it's why I was so challenged by Esau's book, Reading While Black. And then um, probably my favorite book in the last couple of years is a series of essays by a Benedictine monk who's also um, uh, an artist. His name is Hubert Van Zeller. I think it's out of print, but you can still find it. It's called We Die Standing Up. (laughs) And it's just in your face. Awesome series of like really intense short essays on life, death, sickness, relationships, illness, forgiveness, all kinds of topics. It's just a really fun book to, to kind of get an infusion of inspiration in the short in the short term. Fascinating. Fascinating. I took a note of all three of those. Sweet, man. Awesome. Um, what does a life enchanted mean to you? Yeah, dude, that's a great question. I want to know what it means to you. <laughs> I've been listening to you for a long time, so I think I got a simple you're you are the second I think, guest. Uh, that's re- really the question, Nick. Yeah, yeah, go. You're the second guest in a row who has flipped it back on me. By the way, and I was ne- not <laughs> expecting it, but I love that. So go ahead. <laughs> Initially, when you started your podcast, I was like, it made me think of gnomes and stuff. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and I, and I, so I I know better now what you mean by it. Yeah. If you were to ask me to define it for myself, I would say it's life with a. Uh, an experiential awareness of the mm. bigger picture. And, and another way to put that is that is recognizing that I am a spiritual being and I have a body. Um, both are really important, but I would flip the typical perspective. I think C.S. Lewis maybe did this initially from your physical with the spirit um, to you know we are spiritual beings. And, uh, but it's got to make sense in the flesh because we also uh, are, we also have bodies. So mm said it better than what's I your, could. Yeah, I answer. What what's your oh, think so? What's your quick? What's your elevator? Yeah, man. Um it changes and the last person who asked me this, uh I told them that it is a life full of presence, like constant presence and awareness. Those two words are synonymous to me and mm-hmm. um full of love, which is God. The Bible says that God is love and it's like if I can be present and full of God or right. full of love at all times, like that to me is living a life enchanted because all the fruit that I want, the purpose, the hope, the joy, 
the patience, the faithfulness, all of the, all the fruit that I want in my life would stem from being completely present and completely filled and, you know, with, with love and abiding in the vine as we, as we talked about, dude. So that's kind of where I'm at right now, but a lot goes into that because a lot, like I talk a lot about health and wellness and like, it's hard to be present when you have, when you're, you know, have diabetes and you're hurting or like, you know, you have a, you can't breathe well or you have horrible chronic diseases or autoimmunity yeah. or like there's just a lot that goes into it so to me it's like just this holistic approach to what can i do to really like optimize this time on earth so that i can i can be present with the people who i care about and my mm-hmm. my supernatural being who created me the supernatural being and then um you know spread his love spread his goodness so have you connected that with John one fourteen consciously yet? Do you know that the first like opening statement of John, John writes, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. So you, mm. you just said presence and love. And John describes Jesus as among us, which is presence full of grace and truth, which mm. is love. Love that. That's super um, good. So, oh, dude, that's some like some theological root to what you just, uh, that's, you just, super that's good. a great description. I, I love it. Thanks, brother. Thank you, man. So everyone, listeners, you guys can all check out Nathan's stuff on his website. It's, it's NathanOates.com, I believe, correct? NathanOates.com. Yep. yep. And yep. he's, you're launching an online cohort in January. It sounds like called Stabilitas, Stabilitas, 100 Days with Stability. Saint- Sauce. Dang it. <laughs> I should have pronounced I got, it for you. My best friend's Mexican, bro. So <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That actually sounds more Spanish. Yeah. You're right. No, it's the Latin word for st- stability. Yeah. Stabilita. <laughs> it doesn't matter what Stabilitas. it's called. Because you were about to say the more <laughs> That's so good, dude. Yeah, but you're launching that cohort, that coaching, 100 Days with St. Benedict. That's coming in January. People can sign up for that online. They can pre-order your book or order your book online, connect with you online. I'll put all of that in the show notes. Nathan, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate the time. Yep. All right, guys. Till next time. Peace. A special thanks to King's Kaleidoscope for the music heard throughout this episode. Also, a big shout out to Capital Floats, aka my favorite sensory deprivation and float tank facility in Northern California. I'm a frequent user there, and the experience is always transformative to say the least. If you're interested in floating and live in Northern Cal, make sure you use promo code LIFEENCHANTED with no spaces at checkout on their website. You'll save a whopping 40% off your first float, and you will not find that deal anywhere else. Also, in regards to some of the content shared in these episodes, make sure you always consult your doctor before making any sudden diet or lifestyle changes. If you're interested in connecting with me, you can find me on Instagram at nick.carlisle or send me an email nick at mylifeenchanted.com. 